0: At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Houndsome. We all know the classic
0: line from Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. As much as we might want and strive for a wholly equal world, it is an unlikely reality for humans. We are too flawed, too greedy, too competitive, too selfish. Speculative fiction has certainly suggested that a society working towards equality will eventually devolve into a troubled dystopian state. But is this really an inevitability? In Lavanya Lakshminarayan's debut novel, *The Ten Percent Thief*, she creates a society that defines itself as a meritocratic technocracy that is free from discrimination, while simultaneously creating inequalities everywhere. We are pleased to be joined by Lavanya in this episode to discuss meritocracy and the myth of a fair society. So, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Hi everyone. Uh and thank you Charlotte Megan and Lucy for having me on Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm really excited to be here today. Uh I'm Lavanya Lakshminaray and I write science fiction. And we're here talking about my book The 10% Thief out from Rebellion and Solaris at the end of this month, which is the month of March. So if you're listening to this anytime later in 2023, go pick it up. Um The 10% Thief is set in the future of Bangalore, India, where all historic biases and discriminations have been eliminated, and civilization is now mapped on these markers and parameters of merit, which creates, you know, pecking order. Uh, The 10% Thief is set in a world where the top 20% of society form the virtual elite and have endless privilege and access to all the latest technology, uh, but the bottom 10% are routinely deported from society. Uh, they're taken you know, to the other side of the city where there's no running water or electricity. Um, things are going great for the elite until the 10% thief steals a single jacaranda butt and plants it on the analog side of the city. And this is when all the trouble begins.
0: I love that it's a jacaranda bud that does it. I love the jacaranda tree.
2: (laughs) I love it too. And you find it all over Bangalore. uh, Okay. Transplanted here. Yeah.
0: Ah, So it's uh, really common in my hometown of Perth, Western Australia. So uh, yeah. And there's beautiful streets lined with jacarandas. And in November, it's just beautiful. It's all purple. It's really wonderful. (laughs) Oh, Yes. Okay, so before we get into the really meaty stuff, let's talk a little bit just about some of your favourite speculative fiction stories that tackle ideas of justice and and fairness in society.
2: This is a really tricky one for me because so much speculative fiction does this, um, either very directly uh, or, or indirectly because when it comes to speculative fiction, you know, you have these worlds that are, Constructed like a sandbox where our existing realities are redefined and then human beings have to figure out their relationships with the world around them and with each other within this new rule set. So this, this is a tricky one for me, but, um, I'm going to go with a lot of Ursula Le Guin's work. Um, the dispossessed and the word for world is forest. Um, I think these have been very influential. Um, parts of my reading there's also you know uh, of course George Orwell, both with Animal Farm in 1984 um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and I'm talking about a lot of really old classic stuff um, because my brain works chronologically but then you know you skip forward all the way to right now where Becky Chambers is exploring this through her science fiction and I absolutely love it and um, so, yeah, it's it's a really big spectrum of, uh, of works of speculative fiction and not just restricted to science fiction. Um, I personally love uh, the works of Sir Terry Pratchett. I think he satirizes, you know, injustice and inequality so beautifully. And so my when I write, I'm drawing on all of these um, and kind of trying to create things, I guess,
0: I mean, you, you listed some of my favorites. I really love, um, The Dispossessed. It's, it's just so good. (laughs) And um, yeah, Le Guin is still amazing. Uh, I, I can't ever sort of seem to get past just how wonderful she was kind of like, she was one of the big fuels for me to really get into speculative fiction as a whole. So yeah, I always time and time again, come back to her and, the Dispossessed, in particular, is is an absolute favorite of mine.
2: Oh, same here. I, I, she she was so so far ahead of her time, you know, in the way she perceived the world and reflected the world. And I think she wrote in in her introduction to one of the editions of the Left Hand of Darkness that all science fiction is metaphor, and that's something that's really stuck with me.
1: Well. Since Megan won't mention it, I have to say that my favourite is Terry Pratchett. I think he manages to take real world issues and put them into a fantasy world and comment on them whilst also giving you a completely different story at the same time. And he's he's absolutely amazing. So I was so pleased to hear that he was uh, one of your influences. Um, But let's talk about your novel. So in your book, you created a very complex society based on the simple premise that useful people thrive. So, trying to avoid some spoilers, can you talk us through your bell curve society and what the bell chart on human rights means for the characters in your world?
2: Oh, I'd be happy to, uh, because yes, it is a complex society based on a very simple premise, but a very flawed premise all the same. Um, this is a society in which the more useful you are, and I will come to what usefulness means, Um the more valued your life is. Um, And, you know, this this is harsh. It's ruthless. Um, It's very critical of the present-day systems of capitalism that we have running the world. Um, And in in the system, uh, usefulness is determined by your productivity and your social image. So the longer you work in terms of hours put in and the greater the results you produce for the corporation that runs the world in the 10% Thief, the more valuable you are. Uh, So this is a kind of no excuses world. Uh, There are characters in my novel, again, without giving away any spoilers, who, for various reasons, you know, they struggle with their mental health. Uh, They've suffered great losses in their lives. And this is all unforgivable because it impacts their productivity and you know, the minute your productivity slips, you are in danger of sliding down the bell curve. Now, what is the bell curve? Um, It is this, it, it is a mathematical curve that is actually used in a ton of corporate spaces today to determine performances of employees. And so I've just applied the bell curve to this city where, um, Based on an algorithm that kind of tallies up your productivity and whether you're expressing the right social image and opinions, um, you get stack ranked. And if you happen to fall into the top 20%, congratulations, you belong to the elite. You have limitless privilege. You have latest to, you have access to all the latest technology, um, which makes your life better because this is a climate ravaged future. So you've got, Everything from climate solutions to simulations for your entertainment, life is really good for you. If you fall into the middle 70%, you know, you could do better, but they're not going to kick you out because every corporate structure needs warm bodies doing their work for them, right? And so the 70% are the warm bodies in the room who are constantly being pushed to aspire to be the elite. And then you've got the bottom 10%, and these are, according to the corporation the no-hopers, and they are routinely deported because their value to society is incredibly low. Um, Now, this is a value system that is determined on the basis of what constitutes a valuable and, I guess, functioning member of society according to a very small group of people who are in power. And it's intended to be a mirror to the way success and failure are perceived, uh, even in the present day world we inhabit.
1: It seems to me you've taken a a satirical view of present day corporations and like, what would it be if we took, let's face it, the rather unpleasant um, practices we have within corporations and applied them to society. But I wanted to come back to the idea of the simple premise of useful people thrive. I mean, if you say that out loud and just sort of put it as a, you know, at the top of a whiteboard, it sounds like it's going to be brilliant. If you pull your weight, you're going to kind of be well looked after, and you're going to be productive. Everybody's going to have have a good time. But it struck me, you kind of took came along it in a sort of Isaac Asimov way, like his three laws. That I'm going to put up a simple premise, and you know what? I'm then going to pull it all down and show all the the different ways in which it could go wrong? I mean, was that in your mind when you were planning? Were you like, here here is a brilliant idea, but actually I could see it going wrong in this many ways?
2: Absolutely. I mean, the the minute I started putting down this, what I call the bell charter on human rights, which is, like you said, it's satirical. It's pretty much all the different ways in which human beings can be denied their rights, right? Like That's what it eventually winds up being. Um, I could see it unraveling in thousands of different ways, because um, it makes sense. You know, logically, it 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 seems like it should add up when you say useful people thrive in society. But then you come to questioning what usefulness means and why people have to justify their existences to thrive or to be granted a quality of life. There is this notion that if you want it... You know, you will work for it and earn it through merit. And, um, you know, that way the playing field is even. Everybody has equal opportunity. But reality has never worked out in that way. Um, if you look at useful people according to traditional metrics of what constitutes productivity or what constitutes, um, I, I guess, you know, Um, popularity, right? You are immediately marginalizing large sections of society that have traditionally been ignored. So the minute I started putting these down, I thought, okay, this seems like a society that could explode. So let me go blow stuff up.
0: So, I mean, yeah, this is the thing. You you know, you've got this meritocracy, which, like, I complain about this all the time. (laughs) This is kind of like... (laughs) You know, it's a bit of my uh, soapbox that I'm always on. Like, this world should be a meritocracy. You know, it should down with nepotism and just succeeding because you know people or you come from money. You know, I work hard, I do a good job, so I should be promoted or I should get this and that. And you know, having this merit-based society, it just seems like something should be good. <laughs> I mean, is there a reason in particular why you really wanted like that merit-based approach?
2: There is definitely a reason. Look, and I'm I'm all for what you said about you know being done with nepotism, right? Or done with legacy and generational wealth guaranteeing more opportunities to people because that is one of the ways the world works right now. But when you take a look at merit and uh, equal opportunities and creating, you know, let's say a platform where everybody just comes in and is granted the same kind of access um, to succeed. Um, There are people starting at different levels, like I tend to look at it as a slope, right? And Uh, Based on your intersections of your privilege, you start off at a different point on the slope. So people who have traditionally had a lot of privilege in terms of, I guess, I don't know, class and gender and race um, start off fairly close to the top. And then there are people who, as, as their marginalizations become more complex, slide further and further towards the bottom of the slope and have to Climb so much higher just to be able to start off at that equal opportunity platform. Now, this book is set in India, and in India merit is constantly used as an argument, um, but it's used in the, as an argument most often by the privileged against social reparations um, that various policy makers and systems are attempting to make uh, to sort of, I guess, even out you know, thousands of years of systemic oppression of people from certain castes and classes and uh, you know keep in mind like there are, there are whole i guess swaths of the population that have constantly been told for generations that they're not worth it that they will never succeed just because they belong to a certain type of identity and this is different and exists in its own context all across the world so when when we talk about merit, um, I would love to see everybody start at the same place and then succeed on their own terms. But nobody is starting from the same place, uh, which is something that, you know, can be witnessed pretty frequently in the world all around us. And so that's why I went really hard at meritocracy because I think it's easy to talk about Merit being a great system, when you're looking at you wanting to catch up to, you know, the people who have always had tons of privilege and you think, you know, "I, I work really hard, I want to catch up to them and I deserve to. But then there are lots of people who don't have the privilege that you have, who are attempting to catch up to you, but just cannot do so because both systemically and socially, they've constantly been discouraged from doing so. And so that's where I went at Merit really hard.
3: Building on this idea, um, you know, a big part of the meritocratic society, um, you know, that you've built, it centers on the idea of uh, controlling access to technology. Um, And obviously, in our world, you know, controlling access to things like education, especially for women, um, has long been a way for other classes, other races, other people's other agendas um, to keep marginalized people in their place Um, and this is something that we see that's unfortunately still uh, hugely prevalent across the world today. Um, So what you know new perspective or ideas did you want to bring when you were looking at something as fundamental as access to education, access to technology?
2: This is something that's really important to me because historically a lot of power has been concentrated and sort of safeguarded by denying people opportunities and those opportunities start at a really basic level in terms of education. Um, now, in the 10% thief, I've tried to explore this in multiple ways. Um, I have characters who are both systemically and socially discriminated, discriminated against, including one who actually happens to be in high school, pursuing an education with a dream of being a virtuoso pianist. Um, but she cannot access technological music learning aids, which the rest of the world has access to, just because you know she was adopted from the analog side of the world. So historically, she is somebody who is, is from a lower class in society, and people believe that she's a threat. Um, and this is something I wanted to talk about, the perception of certain individuals or classes at As outsiders who don't deserve access to things like education and technology, because that has historically happened over time. Um, Like you mentioned, Missy, you know, discrimination against women continues to happen across the world, even today when it comes to education. Um, Historically, people who, in India, people who haven't had the privilege of being from certain castes have been denied education. Uh, People who aren't middle class or higher have constantly been denied education. And so uh, in writing about these things in my book, I chose to kind of fragment the perspectives I was bringing into the novel. Um, I have something like over 20 characters, which is just insane. But a lot of them struggle with this. Um, In fact, on the analog side of the city, they are... The, the people who have been branded analogues have kind of restructured themselves and they have children, of course, and they offer them a completely alternate system of education just because they can't access what is mainstream. Um, what I did want to do, though, is kind of um, kind of also open up the world to the people who have had the privilege of this kind of access to technology and education. So if you look at it, most of my characters are women. And most of my characters are women who have strong relationships with technology, which is something that isn't the case even today. And I wanted to explore that. And because of the extremely capitalist setup of um, the world in the 10% thief of Apex City, all of these women tend to be exactly what present-day corporate reality tells women we need to be, um, in terms of being very emotionless and ruthless and cutthroat. And you know what? There is room for women to be this way, but there's also room for women to be otherwise. But I think the sort of... um, How do I put this across articulately? Um, In terms of the way... Capitalist and corporate spaces and technological spaces have very specific expectations according to gender. I wanted to show a world where women, despite their privilege and their access to technology, uh, have all had to pay that price and cannot be themselves naturally. The same goes for the men in my novel; they're they're struggling too. I was
0: wondering. I mean, because obviously, this is where I'm going to be very ignorant and say, you know, I don't know loads about Indian society, but I do know about the caste system and that it's still very present in your everyday life. I mean, do you think that that was, you know, was that a real reason for you to explore this kind of approach of, you know, this, as we say, the access to certain things or the way that, you know, the, the kind of merit-based approach you know, comes down to a little bit of your your society and the one that you grew up in, um, as opposed to many Western readers and, and writers who who don't have that quite so ingrained in this society that they know.
2: Oh absolutely. Um I think, you know, I I in terms of how I locate myself, I've I felt marginalization in India because I'm a woman. So on the basis of sex and gender, there's constant marginalization and discrimination happening in society over here. Um, It can be very gendered. I was very lucky that my family didn't endorse any of that. But the minute you step out of your home, you confront it every single day. And for women who are also disadvantaged on the basis of Uh, caste and class, uh, the discrimination only gets worse. And it was quite, it is quite impossible to ignore that in contemporary Indian society because, you know, it, it sort of spans this entire spectrum of loathsome behavior. That's everything from very overt discrimination to microaggression. And you witness it constantly. So I think that was definitely at the back of my mind while I was while
0: I was writing this, so I mean, Apex City is the the city in your novel, which you know, in in its past fictional life, was Bangalore. <laughs> um, so I mean, what sort of society and politics have you specifically drawn from the real Bangalore, and uh, you know that that maybe readers from outside of India might not pick up on? You know, something that's current, historical, that you've you've pulled through to your future imagined version of Bangalore?
2: Oh, so I love talking about this because I am from Bangalore and uh, I love this city, but I can also be very critical of the city because of the way it has changed so drastically uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, So stuff that's very real in my novel um, includes, you know, the ice cream place, the corner house, uh, it's legendary, it's been around for ages, generations of school kids have the fondest memories of their chocolate fudge sundays. So if you're listening and you're ever in Bangalore, you have to check it out. Um, but the other things that I've kind of pulled upon, um, Bangalore historically has always been a very, I guess, slow-paced, uh, small town where everybody knew everybody else and You know, it was a really green city for the longest time. And then there was this whole IT boom in Bangalore, which I was also a part of because I used to work as a game designer. Um, And I've seen this transition in terms of the philosophy of Bangalore, going from that kind of laid back, very chill place to a city that's always on the move, that's really high energy, where, you know, Productivity means a lot. I mean, it's impossible to walk into a coffee shop in Bangalore today and not come across at least half a dozen startups having meetings there, you know, or demoing things there. I mean, at one point, I was part of a startup, and we were building these battle robots, like custom three D printing them, and we would take them to coffee shops to play test them, you know, to see whether the controls worked. So it's it's been this completely insane shift from the kind of place where everything shut down at 8pm to the kind of place where it's always buzzing all the time. And there have been positives and negatives to this. The positives, of course, are the fact that, you know, it's a far more metropolitan city now. Um, There are people from all over. You have some fascinating conversations. Um, But the negatives are, you know, The traffic is insane and development has been completely through the roof, right? So there's been a lot of unplanned development, which means public spaces and garden spaces have started to shrink very drastically. And uh, this has resulted along with the global climate crisis in a a more local weather crisis where um, it's constantly warm. So, you know, there are all these tiny things that have found their way into the novel. Um, but by far, one of my favorite things that I chose to include, um, it pops up much later on in the novel when um, the people at Apex City excavate these guard towers of this ancient kingdom, named Gaeta. And um, it is said that there is a prophecy that uh, accompanies these towers which is that the minute the city crosses the area uh, covered by these four powers, and there's one in the north, the south, the west, and the east, the minute the city sprawls beyond these limits, it will become unsustainable. Now, this is real. He actually had those four guard um and the city has gone way past those limits. So, you know, that, that was my favorite bit of real Bangalore history to include in the novel.
3: I just want to say that was the most uh, comprehensive answer to a question I've heard for a while so and really interesting so thank you
1: Oh thank you Thinking about the future and ideal societies do you think that ultimate fairness will ever live up to its name I mean, are we ever going to have the Star Trek future where everybody is working well and together and we've no poverty and it's all working up? Or do you think it will always devolve into yet another system that will deprive some citizens no matter what we base it on?
2: I would absolutely love to see the kind of future where ultimate fairness wins out, where everybody is cooperative and empathetic and kind, I think that is probably the biggest hope that a lot of science fiction writers share. Um, And I think, you know, particularly for me, in writing um, a novel that could be viewed as dystopian or or at least dystopian satire, um, it's just my tiny way of saying, hey, this is a warning. Can we please not go here? Can we just be kinder to each other and more respectful of the differences that make us unique um, and that can really enrich us as the human race? Um, I I would love to see that future. I I think it will take a lot of work, though, if I'm being realistic. We're a long way off, um, especially when you look at the types of discrimination and biases and quite honestly the ghastly hate speech that's running amok on things like social media right now. Uh, We are a long way off. Um, But I I would really look forward to a future where we could make this uh, a reality, a kind of wonderful united future where everyone is free to express themselves and to be the people they want to be without hurting other people.
0: Yeah, that is a world that I would like to live in. Um, But as you say, I think it's probably quite some way off, (laughs) uh, sadly.
3: Very sadly. Hey, but we do our part in um, encouraging its growth in very small ways, hopefully.
2: I hope so. I hope all the little things can kind of build into this sort of larger community movement right where where ho- hopefully one day the kind people will just outnumber the kind of evil ones
3: there's a bit at the end of middlemarch um where george eliot saying that like dorothea the main character she did no great deeds uh, in her life but the I suppose her goodness or her, you know, her idealism, like, found its way in a kind of like it diffused through the people that that she came into contact with, and that like this, she leaves like the whole book on this final image of that if many many people do small bits of good or or make progress in these, you know, to the people that we touch, like in our personal circles, then one day the world will be, um, you know, a more enlightened place. I love that. Yeah, I absolutely love
2: that. (laughs) Shame it was
0: several hundred years ago and we've still not made that much progress, but
2: still. (laughs) But still. (laughs) I'd like to believe the ripples of kindness will eventually turn into this enormous wave.
1: That's such a beautiful image. I like that. The idea of all the ripples turning into a wave, that'd be good. Yeah, uh, it's was a nice image. <laughs> and a beautiful one to end
0: on. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. It's been a lovely
2: conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I've completely enjoyed being here and talking to all of you. Breaking the Glass Slipper
0: is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.